when Callie and I were dating and I knew she was in love with me and I was in love with her and it was, you know, the next step was marriage. I really kind of started dragging my feet because, you know, the whole marriage idea was just, sounded like prison, kind of. Um, you know, when I was in college, I, it, but it's not, just, it's not. But I, I, I had this vision. So I was an RA in college and we named our floor Butter. It stood for bachelors till the rapture. Never get married. I actually had a bet with somebody I wouldn't get married until I was 25 and I lost that bet. But, you know, how are you with making decisions? So that was one for me that I just kind of drug out, drug out until I was on the phone with her dad. And I called him maybe to ask him for his, you know, for his permission. And we're talking and we've been talking for a long time. And finally, he just gets to the point. He says, are you going to ask me if you can marry my daughter or what? <laughs> yeah. And so I hang up going, huh, can't turn back now. <laughs> you know, but those are decisions, you know, big decisions. How do we make those? Uh, I have a brother-in-law who he, any decision, is going to study. So we were out one day and, and sunglasses, and I'm wearing my, you know, $10 Walmart sunglasses, and he pulls his case out and pulls out his sunglasses. I'm like, wow, check those out. And he started telling me all about his sunglasses and how he, he researched sunglasses for months and months before he bought the perfect pair. And he knew everything about this pair of sunglasses and why it was the best. And, of course, he would take really good care while I would go through 10 pairs of the Walmart glasses. But this is what he does with any purchase, whether it's a car or a, a, a bike or a computer. He studies and researches and makes the best decision. We, as we look at Jesus, are going to be forced to make a decision. This isn't one of those things that you can go, eh, I'll decide later. Or maybe I'll never decide. And a lot of people will do that. You know, you heard some of that. Oh, I think he was maybe a good person, maybe the Messiah. Not sure. That's not okay. <laughs> to end on not sure basically is making a choice against. And so we have to land on a decision. We have to make the decision. And I would say the decision about who we're going to follow as Lord of our lives is one of those that we should look at. We shouldn't just blindly follow, but we should look at the details. Kind of like my brother-in-law looks at sunglasses. We should look at this and make an informed decision. And then when we make the decision, we should make the decision. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to let Jesus talk to us through John. We're going to be in John chapter 5. But I want to see Jesus talking to us. And then we're going to make a decision based on what he said about himself. Now, we know that the book of John was written by the Apostle John, many years after Jesus had died. It was written after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the Synoptic Gospels. They're all very similar. John is pretty different. And he's writing, the book is Christological, meaning it's about Christ. Again, John chapter 5. And he tells us later in the book why he wrote it. He wrote John so that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that we might have life. So that's why John wrote down every word in here that we might believe and have life. So that's the goal. And here we're going to see Jesus talking about himself. Now, it begins, and we're not going to read the story. You should do it when you get home. But John 5, 1 through 14, John heals a lame man. And so he heals this man, and it's on the Sabbath. So for the Jews, that was Saturday. He, he makes this man that could not walk, walk on the Sabbath. The man goes running off, telling everybody that now he can walk. He says, well, who did it? That guy, Jesus, he healed me. And so, because he did this amazing miracle on the Sabbath, and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, people are getting angry at him. And that sets up this conversation, which I have to tell you, if, 
if you woke up this morning kind of lazy and tired, wake up. Because this passage is full. It's just full. It's full of theology. It's full of doctrine. It's full of excitement. Um, as I wrote this, I just got excited several times in my notes. I just went, wow! <laughs> Exclamation point. And this morning as I was going back over it, it's overwhelming. You know, I mean, all of Scripture is alive and active and useful. But this passage, this, it should blow your mind. It blows my mind. But what happens is he heals him. Um, and then look at verse 15, John 5, 15. That man went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, here's, what, here's how Jesus responds to that. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now. And I am working. There's a lot in that one little phrase. So they're mad at Jesus for working on the Sabbath, with on the Sabbath, which the law, the Jewish law said you cannot work on the Sabbath. He was healing people, doing miraculous signs, and so they came against him for that. His response was, My father's been working, meaning God in heaven, Yahweh, the one they worshiped as the one true God, Yahweh, is always working. Even though you know he created in Genesis, six days he created, it said he rested on the seventh day. That's kind of where we get Sabbath from. He was trying to teach us to take some time to rest, to worship. But there's something about the universe that God is always working. God the Father is always upholding it. You know, if you've studied nature and gravity and all that stuff, it's pretty amazing. And the Bible teaches that God is constantly holding it together. So the Father is always working. So is the Father subject to the Sabbath? No, because he's not human. He's outside. He created all. So he is working. And so Jesus says, just like the Father's working until now, so am I. He was making himself in line with God. That the works that God does, I do too. And they understood his claim because they said this in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Listen, making himself equal with God. Jesus claimed equality with God, and his listeners did not misunderstand him. Do you get that? He claimed equality with God, and his listeners did not misunderstand him. Listen, if you're a note taker, just side, there's, there's notes sitting around. You can fill in on that. Um, if you're not a note taker, no big deal. If you're a doodler, just doodle on it. Um, or we have the app. You can, you can download the Common Ground app and actually take notes there, and you can email it to yourself. Um, but sometimes it's helpful, and every service, somebody comes up afterwards saying, you missed this point. So, um, Annie Leanne, I'll try and do better this week. Um, but that's the first point. Jesus claims equality with God, and his listeners did not misunderstand him. Think back to that video that we just watched. What are people thinking about God? Oh, he was a prophet. He was a good teacher. I think he came to teach good things and morality and to make us civilized or some junk like that. If Jesus claimed to be God, he was not a good man or a prophet. Let me read how C.S. Lewis puts this. C.S. Lewis writes this in uh, Mere Christianity. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. By the way, this was written in the 50s, and people are still saying the same foolish things. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the th sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, 
or else you would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I can't really say it any better than C.S. Lewis said it. But we trust that the Bible is true, and these accounts are true. We're going to look at this some next week. Can we trust the Bible? And we can. The things that Jesus claimed about himself, and nobody who has ever studied really even argues that Jesus existed. He was a man that existed, and he did the things that we see here, which means he was either evil and possessed by a demon, or he was crazy, or he was who he claimed to be, which means we're going to have to make a choice. So he claims to be God. Now, what do you do with somebody who claims to be God? Or what does a good man do when they're accused of being God? If you remember in uh, Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas, this is after Jesus died and rose again, Paul and Barnabas are out preaching, and they're doing miracles and things like that. And so they're, they're preaching, and Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas was the main speaker, and so they called him, no, Paul was the main speaker, so they called him Hermes. And Barnabas was there, and so they called him Zeus. So they were accusing them of being gods. And the, uh, the priest from the Zeus temple, which was right there, was coming down bringing a, a, an ox or something. He was coming to sacrifice to them. And here's what they did. They ran into the crowd, tore their clothes, and fell on their knees and said, no, don't do this. That's what a good man does when he's accused of being God. Peter, Peter, when he's with Cornelius, Cornelius bows before Peter. This is in Acts 14. And Peter says, get up, get up. Don't bow to me. I'm a man. In the book of Revelation, John, that's probably the same John that's writing this, John stands before an angel, and he bows on his knees to worship the angel. And the angel says, I'm a servant like you. Get up. So even angels don't accept worship. And a good man surely doesn't accept worship. Jesus claimed to be God. And later on, if you remember after he died and rose again, Thomas is before him. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God, and worships him. It says that. And Jesus accepted the worship. A good man does not claim to be God, and a good man does not accept worship. So, if you're in here and you came in here thinking Jesus was probably a prophet or a good man, that's not an option. Meaning, either let's follow him all the way, or let's be done with this whole Bible thing. Seriously. You can't, you can't be in the middle on it. A good person does not claim to be God. But then, look at verse 19. He doubles down. He said, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus says he's not independent of the Father. Everything the Father has for him to do, he does. They're doing the same thing. This is a unity that he's claiming, and they get it. They know what he's claiming. He is claiming, Jesus claimed to do the works of God. Look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. He says, I've been doing all these works. I'm doing what the Father has me to do. And by the, the works, you know, in the book of John, we've seen him heal a lame man. We've seen him turn water into wine, which not a lot of people knew he did that. 
We saw him cleanse the temple. But he was doing other miracles before this point. And so all these signs, and they knew the signs. Nobody could say, oh, no, you're not doing something. They knew the signs. But he said, you know, all of this I've done because of the Father, and I'm going to do even more, even greater works. And what are those greater works? He tells us in verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. He's claiming the ability to raise the dead. Now, you see this in Exodus or I'm sorry, in Deuteronomy 32, 39, 1 Samuel 2, 6, um, you see that God claims to be able to raise the dead. So the Father, he can do whatever he wants. He can raise the dead. And you see Elisha, this is in 2 Kings 4, Elisha actually does raise somebody from the dead. But it's not Elisha, it's God the Father that does it. So this has happened in history. And the Jews knew it, that there had been people raised from the dead by the work of the Father. And Jesus hadn't done it yet. But he was going to. Jesus rose several people from the dead, the most famous being Lazarus, his best friend, his good friend, um, and then himself. And so he said, these are going to come, be able to raise the dead. But as Jesus often does, and we saw this last week looking at the woman at the well, Jesus often is, is talking on two planes at the same time, physical and spiritual. And often he's talking physical and he's meaning spiritual, and people just don't quite get it, and then the light will go on. But here, he's talking both physical and spiritual, kind of at the same time. And he'll break that out. He'll explain that. But Jesus claims to be able to raise the dead. This life is talking about eternal life. Eternal life that starts now. What is needed for eternal life? So he says he can raise the dead and give them life. What is needed to give life? And the Jews would understand this from the Old Testament. What is it that separates men and women from God? Sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Meaning there's nothing anybody can do to set the two, to bridge that gap between them and God because of the sin issue. It must be forgiven. And it must be forgiven by the one who has been offended. And the one who's been offended by even our smallest sin is God himself. Only God can forgive the sin that we've committed against him and bridge that gap for us. Do you remember when Jesus was healing a man, and there was a crowd, it was when they, they lowered a man through the roof in Acts, or not in Acts, but no, different time, sorry. <laughs> Jesus is healing a man, and Jesus looked at him and he said, your sins are forgiven. And everybody in the room starts freaking out. How can he claim to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And he said, I said this so you would understand. He said, but so you'll get it, get up and walk. So the man gets up and walks, grabs his pallet, and goes home. But Jesus started it by saying, your sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sins. That's how Jesus can give life, because he can forgive sins. Jesus offers life through the forgiveness of sins and perfect reconciliation with the Father through his substitutionary death and resurrection. It was in Matthew 9 where he heals that paralytic. So if you want to look that up later, that's in Matthew 9. But this is referring to eternal life, which begins immediately. Look at verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, as I look at this, I think, Jesus, let's just stick with one of those for a while. <laughs> He's laying all this stuff about who he is. Just one of these is a whole sermon. Just one of these, people would be trying to wrap their brains, and he just keeps going. He says, all 
The Father judges no one, but has given judgment to the Son. Jesus claims to be able to judge all of humanity. He's the judge. Now, elsewhere, Jesus said, I didn't come to judge. I came that they may have life. Jesus' first coming was to give his life for us, to bridge that sin gap. But he's coming back, and when he does, he's going to judge. He's going to talk about that a little bit more later. But it's inevitable. He's going to judge. And he's going to judge for sin. Jesus paid for sin with his body. But for those who do not believe in Jesus, their sin still rests on them. Their sin is not taken care of, and they will be judged for each one. The Bible talks about a book will be opened up, and each sin will be listed, and they'll receive judgment for each sin that they've committed. But for those who believe in Jesus, the book is opened, and it goes, oh, Jesus, you're good. And then rewards will be given, but sin will not be brought up. In verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Again, does a good man claim to have honored like God? No, Jesus does. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father whom he has sent. Here's another big fat truth we all need to get. Jesus claims to be the only way. Jesus claims to be the only way to the Father. So we can't, we can't claim Jesus is a way. I've shared the story before. I was talking to a... A woman, I think she was in her 60s, a real sweet lady, and, and we were talking spiritual, and I got to share the whole gospel with her. And at the end, she's nodding and smiling. I'm like, like, great, she either already believes this, or she's ready to accept it. And she said, oh, I'm so excited you found your way. What? <laughs> yeah, you found your way. You know, there's many roads to the top of the mountain, but you found your way to get up there. No, there's, there's one way. And if we're going to follow Jesus, we can't claim he's a way. We have to understand he's the way. And that's what he claims right here, that he is the way. Acts 4.12 says that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If somebody rejects Jesus, they are rejecting God. If someone accepts Jesus, they are accepting God. There's no way around it. There's no way around it. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. This is a whole sermon just in this verse. Look at that. Just look at this. Whoever hears my word, so they hear Jesus speaking, or they hear the, the word from the Bible. Like right now, this is you. If you hear the word right now, you hear, I lost it. <laughs> um, verse 24 whoever hears and believes him who sent me which is the father has eternal life by, by hearing and believing the father you're believing Jesus is the son of God and for us we know that he died on the cross and rose again that's what we must believe and if we believe look at this if we believe we are not judged but is passed from death to life Get it. Get this. This brings so much peace. You will not be judged. And I have asked a lot of Christians, a lot of people who claim to be Christians, I've said, how many sins is God going to bring up in the end? And they said, all of them. I said, how many? All of them? No, not one. You will not come into judgment. Do you get that? Jesus' blood covers us completely, not mostly, completely, which is great for me because I still struggle with this whole sin thing. You know, I, I'm working on walking in the Spirit. I'm working, but I still have sin issues. I do. 
And I am so thankful that when I stand before God, it's not an excuse to sin, but I stand before God and I say, I'm sorry. And he says, sorry for what? <laughs> My son took all of it. I, I'm not even going to remember. As far as the east is from the west, so our sin is going to be apart from us. That's amazing. And so it's not this, come to Jesus and now let's work really hard to get better. Let's, let's come to Jesus and now work out our salvation and earn it. It's not that at all. It's given, and then we respond in obedience. And then he cleanses our heart, and we get better at sin. I like to say it's kind of like, you know, if you're, you throw right-handed, you want to start throwing left-handed. You, you know, you look like a girl. Or that's not fair. Um, you look like you've never thrown left-handed before. Um, but over time, over time, you'll get better. But it takes practice. Walking the Christian life, learning how to walk in the spirit who dwells within you, is like learning to throw left-handed. Because if you've been throwing right-handed, walking in your sin your whole life, it's an adjustment to walk left-handed. But the Holy Spirit gives you everything you need. Jesus gives you everything you need to do it. But you won't be judged. Do you get that? Say amen if you get that. Amen. Okay, thank you. That's a big deal. You will not be judged. But look, but has passed from death to life. Has passed. Past tense. When you, by faith, accept Jesus as Lord, you pass from death to life right then. Right then. Eternal life starts now. A, a lot of times it gives me chills. We get this picture that we're going through life, we're going to die, and then everything is just this super majestic change and a new life, a new and it is. But there's an aspect, it's really going to be just like a step. Because we're already in eternal life right now. We're already growing in Jesus. And so when we step into eternity, it's just a step. And, of course, we do get a really cool body, and, and that's going to change. And we get a really cool river that we're going to get to swim in and good fruit. And we're going to get to be together. And no, I mean, it's going to be awesome. But it's just it's a transition from what we already are. God is already attempting to perfect us. Not attempting. He already is perfecting us and making us like his son. Jesus claims to be the only way to the Father and to life. The person who believes in Jesus will not be judged. Verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. He's clearly talking about spiritual here. Because a dead, a physically dead person can't hear anything. But a spiritually dead person is in a physically alive body. They hear, they receive life, and they can live. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. What would you do? What would you do if somebody walked through those doors? Maybe somebody we even know. Maybe somebody in here. Somebody we trust. Somebody comes in and they say, hey, I'm the son of God. I can forgive your sins. I came from the Father. I'm united with the Father. I'm the only way. What, what would we do with that person? They came up here and said, hey, bow to me. I'm God. We wouldn't go, you know what, they say some other good things. <laughs> They're pretty much a good person. No, we'd say, get out, you're crazy. <laughs> or you're evil. But, but we would recognize that, wouldn't we? We'd have to deal with that person. Either we call the cops, or we'd follow and drink Kool-Aid in a couple months. <laughs> but, but we would recognize, most of us, that something's not right about that. Jesus makes these claims. And we have to make a choice. Now, why can Jesus make these claims? Because so far, what we've seen so far is Jesus claiming things he does. 
The Father, I do what the Father does. I can raise the dead. I'm going to judge. I mean, all these amazing things to do. But now he's going to speak to who he is, his identity. Why can he make these claims? Look at verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Do you get what he's saying there? If somebody has life in themselves, what does that mean? It means they came from nothing else. Every life right now is a result of another life. So you, you're a result of mom and dad. And your mom and dad are a result of grandpa and grandpa. And you trace that back. Life is, is owing to something else. A tree that grows, it came from a seed. That came from another tree that grows. That's all life. When a dog has puppies, and lots of, they just keep going. But you trace it all back. And so this is, this is where it all comes down to this tree of evolution and the Big Bang and whatever. You trace all that back, and evolution tries to explain where things came from. Oh, this amoeba transformed the, the fish and whatever, and pretty soon it became us. And um, you look around, some of us, you're like, oh, I think that. But, <laughs> but even, even taking that line of thinking, you trace that all the way back to the very first one, and you go, okay, well, what caused the first one? An honest evolutionist scientist is going to have to go, uh -huh. <laughs> And I've read plenty of Plenty of explanations from these people way smarter than me. One of those that I read was somebody said, well, there was nothing, but the nothing exploded, and out of the nothingness came something. You're really smart. You know what you just said? <laughs> Here's another one. You might have heard of, heard of this person. Um, the guy who found DNA, Francis Crick, he was one of those who first mapped out the DNA and traced it. And so now, you know, they've traced the DNA back to, I think, two people in Africa. Um, but he, you know, he, he said tracing it back, his explanation, this Nobel Prize winner, by the way, his explanation of where it started was aliens probably seeded the planet. That's probably how it happened. Aliens came and dropped down the spores needed to turn into life to begin the process. Well, that just extends that, okay, where did the aliens come from? What caused them? I mean, you trace it back, and eventually it falls short, and Jesus right here claims, I'm the uncaused cause. What if somebody came up here and said, I'm the uncaused cause? I'm the one that went, bang, <laughs> and it all started. That's Jesus. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being for him, through him, by him. Jesus created. Do you know in the beginning, that's why the beginning of John is worded almost exactly like Genesis 1? Because Jesus was the one in Genesis 1 that said, let there be light, and there was light. That was Jesus. He said, let the fish swarm, and there were fish. Jesus did that. He is the uncaused cause. Does this blow your mind a little bit? I told you, he's going to say some things that should blow our minds. Um, what was the last song we just sang? What was that song? How Great Thou Art. How Great Thou Art. I, I was remembering the words, but not the title. I love that song. That's, that's the one song that I sing most when I'm driving in my car. How great thou art. Because what else is there? How, why do we get together on Sunday to recognize how great thou art? We get together because we can and we can honor and worship him. We don't get together because we're earning something by being here. We're getting together because the uncaused cause became a man. Loved you and I and gave his life. That's why we come together to worship. We talk about this often. What's eternal life? What did Jesus say? 
Eternal life is that you know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Eternal life is not doing all these things for God. Eternal life is knowing God. What's the greatest commandment Jesus said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not about doing. So we're not even here to do. You're not earning anything being here. But we're here to be. We're here to learn about God, to connect with God. It's so beautiful. I mean, we get to look at this together, and I hope that right now in your heart you're going, wow, wow. If you feel like getting on your knees right now, that's okay. It's acceptable. But just wow, look at this. Verse 26, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to also have life in himself. 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now, we already saw that he's going to judge, but there's another phrase in here, because he is the Son of Man. That is the term from Daniel referring to the Messiah. This is the term Daniel used for the Messiah to come, that he would be the Son of Man. And that title, Son of Man, has implications. Son of God, also a fair title, implications, deity. Son of Man, humanity. Jesus can judge because he became fully human. Have you ever had somebody come up to you and, and you felt like they were judging you? Uh, they were looking at your life and going, okay, parent, parents, you ever had somebody come up and judge your parenting? Ooh, you know, a good parent would do this or that. What if that person wasn't ever a parent? You're like, how do you know? <laughs> you've never had kids. Or maybe parents, we've said this to kids, we've tried to help our kids, and they go, you, you've never been where I've been. You don't know. Well, we have a God who's been where we've been. We have a father who became the son. We have Jesus who knows everything we've done, and he knows every experience that we've he, He's gone through it. He's gone through it. That's what the son of man means. So we're, we're looking at Jesus as the uncaused cause. That's transcendence. That's, that's the theological term. God is transcendent. He is so far beyond us. In Isaiah, he says, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. You can't even understand me, God says. That's transcendence out there. And there's religions that have a transcendent God out there, but you can't really get them. But Jesus is also imminent, meaning among us, close. We have a God who became man to be imminent with us, close to us, and understand us. It's beautiful. Um... If you're familiar with the Nicene Creed, and it, this, is, this was written kind of trying to identify what do we believe as Christians, trying to take the scripture and put it in. It says, we believe in Jesus, the only son who was begotten, not made. Begotten, not made. Jesus was not made. That's the idea. Jesus can make these claims to judge and all that because he is the self-existing God. Because he is the self-existing God. And he can judge because he was like us. Hebrews 4.15 says this. For we do not have a high priest. By the way, Jesus is our high priest. The role of a high priest is to be the intermediary between man and God. Jesus is that. He's the last one. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yet without sin. Hebrews 2.17 and 18 says this. Therefore, he, referring to Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God 
to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus became a man because he had to so he could die to cover our sins. Our sins had to be covered by somebody perfect. There's only one perfect, that is God. So he had to take on flesh to die. But he also took on flesh so that he could be relatable. He knows what we've been through. And now he can comfort you. When you're tempted, he gets it. He can comfort you. He knows what you need, and he's there. We can ignore him all we want. And we do, don't we? I'm not going to take a show of hands. But we can ignore him. But he understands it. He's available. He's imminent. He can be there. Now, real quick, this, this idea of judgment, because he talks about it several times, and he's going to say it again, that he, the Son of Man has the authority to ex execute judgment, and he's going to. But he doesn't want to. You know, you hear this say, I, I don't know how a good God can send somebody to hell. He doesn't want to. And I believe salvation is available to all. Scripture is very clear about that. Jesus died, John 3.16, probably what we all have memorized. He died for the world, for the whole world. So they can't be saved, but those who don't turn must be judged. And the reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is he's waiting for more to be saved. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, that's his promise to come back, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We need to include that because this God, who is Jesus, who is transcendent and imminent, loves us. He is a loving God. He's not just out there, and he's not just a judge. He loves us so much he gave his own life to cover that. He wishes for none to perish. That's why he's waiting. That's why he hasn't come back yet. Remember when he was on the cross? In shame and nakedness? He didn't even look like a man anymore. What did he say about the people killing him? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. We have a Lord who doesn't want to condemn anybody. And so that's why today we look at this and our response must be, come, bow the knee. <coughs> bow the knee. Look at verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Now he goes from spiritual to physical. They're not fully separated, but physical. Those in the tombs, those who are dead, will be raised to life. Listen to this. And come out. They will hear his voice and come out. Notice something in verse 28. Who comes out of the tombs? Just the Christians or just the non-believers? All. All. Okay? Everybody lives forever. Eternal life, everybody. Verse 29. And come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Only two options are available. Accept Jesus as Lord and receive life or reject Jesus and receive the fair judgment for your sins. Eternal torment. Revelation 20. I'm going to read these verses real quick. Revelation 20. Verses 11 through 15. Because this is the scene in the end. If you've never heard this before, tune in. If I've gotten boring, now's the chance to tune back in. This is what's going to happen in the end. Revelation 20, starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. 
From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. By the way, that's Jesus sitting on that throne. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now it goes on after that to describe what happens for those whose name is in the book of life. But the lake of fire, what we often call hell, is very real. When I was a kid, I turned to Christ first, I think, out of fear. I remember going to camp, and I got scared. <laughs> I got scared of hell. And I believe my conversion was, was real, but my first, my first response was fear. I feared hell, and I wanted heaven. And then, as he renewed my heart, I fell in love with him. So fear is a valid response. And a submission to Jesus as Lord out of fear is valid, but it can't stay there very long. Because then you get to know Jesus and you fall in love. But he is going to judge. He is coming to judge. But there's something else. I told you this is so packed full of theology. But in here, the mistake can be made um, in verse 29. Because he says those who have done good get life. And those who have done evil are judged. The mistake is that it's a works-based salvation. That if you do good things, you get life. If you do bad things, that's not it at all. Because Scripture interprets Scripture. We know that. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. Scripture interprets Scripture. We know this can't be talking about works-based salvation. But what it's talking about is what we also see in Ephesians 2, 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. True salvation leads to good works. It's inevitable. It will happen. Someone who's saved will bear fruit. The danger is looking at others and judging their fruit. We can't do that. You don't know where they started from. We can't judge others' fruit, but we should judge our own fruit. We should look at our own life. But a life given to Jesus will bear fruit. John 15, 8. John 15, 8 says this. By this my Father is glorified, this is Jesus speaking again, that you bear much fruit, that means good works, and so prove to be my disciples. The good works are proof of salvation. But we don't do the good works to prove it. Do you get that? We fall in love with Jesus, we turn, we follow him, results in good works because we love him. We want to do these things. We don't look at the Bible and go, okay, a good Christian does these things, and I'm going to try really hard to do those things. But true salvation results in works. This one passage, this one passage shatters a myriad of wrong thinking. It shatters the idea of universalism, that everybody will eventually make it to heaven. That's not possible, according to this passage. This shatters the idea that Jesus is just a good man. No, he was not. He's either God, or he's evil, or he's crazy. This shatters the idea of annihilationism. Some would claim that a good God won't send somebody to hell, which means... Sinners, people who don't follow Jesus, just cease to exist. No, they don't. Through here, you see all of this. You see um, a dead faith without works is another thing to start with. That's not possible. 
Somebody who says, well, I believe in Jesus, but you, there's never, ever any evidence. That's not possible. You see all this in this one passage. But here's how I want us to respond today. Do you get to know Jesus a little more? Have you bowed the knee to the living God who became a man, the uncaused cause who gave his life for you? We can have the salvation Jesus spoke about, but it's by faith alone, in Jesus alone. And so today, we're going to close in two more songs. And while we're singing, if you need to make a response, whether that's a first time, yes, I need to bow to this Lord. Through that door, there's a big sign that says prayer. Through that door, Alex is going to be waiting to pray. We'll have people waiting to pray with you. We'll go in that room so it's a little quieter. Um, but go in there. While we're singing, if you feel your heart being tugged, just go. If you are a Christian, you gave your life before, and you look at this, and you're just overwhelmed by who Jesus is, and you go, that kind of Lord requires a devotion that I haven't been giving. And you want to you want to pray with somebody. You too, while we're closing in song, go through that door. We'll pray with you. But do not walk out of here and go watch the Broncos play unchanged. <laughs> do, not, do not leave and just go back to life. Let the word touch you. The word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Let the word do its work on you. Let Jesus do his work on you. That's what I ask. Let him work on you while we sing. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I am overwhelmed that I can even speak to you. You, the uncaused cause. You, the one who said, let there be light. You, the one who made Adam out of dirt and breathed into him and said, have a soul. You, Jesus, are the one who came as a man. You are the one who gave your life for us that we might live. And it's freely given. I thank you. I thank you that we can worship you. I ask Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit among us, be glorified, please, as we respond in worship. The only true response we can have is to bow the knee and worship you. And we're going to do that now as we sing. We're going to bow the knee in our hearts. Maybe some of us are going to bow physically. That's okay. But we just honor you because, Jesus, you are our king. You are the one God. We love you. We love you. Have our lives. In Jesus' name.